It's Thursday, November 15th, and this is The Daily Dive. Check out this scenario. Two people call customer service at the same time to complain about the same thing. One person gets connected to a rep in a few seconds, the other has to wait on hold for a longer time. What's up with that? My producer Miranda joins us to talk about your customer lifetime value, a number many companies use to determine how much you're worth for the long term and how nice they'll treat you. Next, there's a chemical derived from a cactus-like plant in Morocco that is so hot it destroys nerve fibers, but in a good way. The substance known as RTX has emerged as a promising new painkiller. It destroys certain nerve fibers that signal pain and could be a new tool to help free us from the grasp of opioids. Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired, joins us for the potential new painkiller. Finally, scientists have discovered a super-Earth, a planet that is much bigger and colder than ours, and it's orbiting a nearby star. How big? Three times the mass of Earth. How cold? Over 230 degrees below zero. Doyle Rice, science reporter at USA Today, joins us for what to know about this super-Earth. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They say that they generate scores using data points like the number of times a customer has dialed the call center. This is amazing. Whether this customer has browsed a competitor's website or searched certain keywords in the past few days. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We found this article and it caught my eye instantly. It's all about your secret customer score and how companies in a wide array of industries are judging you and calculating your value to them. <laughs> Everyone with a bank account, a cell phone, online shopping has this thing called a customer lifetime value score. You have at least one, probably more multiple ones. So let me give you this scenario. And then Miranda, you'll come in and explain what it is. Let's say two people call a customer service line at the same time to complain about the same thing. It doesn't matter. One person's going to wait just a few seconds before getting to a representative. Another one's probably going to stay on hold. Imagine the DMV waiting online forever. And this customer lifetime value score, this CLV is what calculates if you're going to get up to the front of the line or if you're the one on hold. So explain to us a little bit more what this customer lifetime value score is, Miranda. It all boils down to, Oscar, essentially, the more profitable you are to any given company, the better service you're going to get. Your score can determine the prices you pay, the products and ads that you see, the perks you receive. Credit card companies use these scoring to decide what kind of benefits they're going to give you. If you want to call up and cancel your card, they say, no, we'll give you another year with no annual fee, that kind of thing. Yeah. And unlike credit scores, these CLVs aren't available to consumers and they aren't monitored by any government agency. So these are all internal numbers, internal ways that they score your value. And you'll never know. It's all in the algorithms and how they score you. And this has been going on for a long time. It's the modern version of you going into the shop and the shopkeeper sizing you up and saying, this person's going to spend a lot of money and be a return customer. And I want to do anything and everything I can to keep their business. This is just the modern version of it with all these data points that everybody uses. Explain a little bit some of these data points that they collect on you, because there's a common thing we talk about on the podcast all the time, privacy. Mm -hmm. You're a fool to think that you have any type of privacy now. You're being monitored on everything you do. There are hundreds of analytics firms, Oscar. They calculate your customer lifetime value, and they all have different ways of doing it. Some of them put value on shoppers based on what they spend, and others use data inputs like your demographic info, such as your zip codes or how many returns you make, the kinds of stores in which you shop. They score based on transaction history, and they say that all companies need to determine 
how customers are going to behave in the future. And they use that information to deal with you on a personal basis. They also weigh you on if you call like a customer complaint line and you complain too much. Right. You could lower your score by just by doing that. We'll get into it in a minute, but they say that specifically airlines use that. Say, Oscar, every time you fly, you get stuck in the middle seat and three times out of the last seven times you've flown, they lost your bags, but you never called to complain. The next time you go to fly, you may get bumped up to first class. Whereas I call and complain if the flight attendant brings me a Sprite when I ask for a Coke, they're going to put me by the bathroom next time. <laughs> Specifically with air travel, just because you brought it up, there's certain data firms that work with them. They can draw on more than 5,000 different data points just to treat you better, give you those upgrades, that seat upgrade into first class. 5,000 different points that they're looking at. Let's look at phone service then, because I know a lot of people, you have to interact with the phone company a lot of times. How do, how do they work? So wireless carriers like Verizon and Sprint, their lifetime value determines marketing offers and other perks. So high value customers that they're concerned are going to jump from, say, Verizon to AT&T or T-Mobile. They'll get routed to the top rated call center employees. And they didn't get into specifics about how they judge the customers, but they say that they generate scores using data points like the number of times a customer has dialed the call center. This is amazing. Whether this customer has browsed a competitor's website or searched certain keywords in the past few days. So say I was sick of AT&T and I heard T-Mobile is going to give everybody unlimited data and I'm searching at T-Mobile. AT&T is going to see that. And when I call to say I'm ending my service, they're going to we'll give you a free phone. They're going to sweeten something for me. Yeah, it's called your churn score. So it's the chances that you have of switching to another carrier. The Wall Street Journal had a really fun quiz. They worked with one of these data firms. They gave them a simplified version of how companies could schedule this. So what they did, they had a theoretical clothing company. Both Miranda and I put our details in there and it was different things like your age, whether you're male or female, if you buy your clothes all at once, or if you're like a seasonal shopper and looking for deals. So Miranda, what did your score end up being? I'll go last. When I'm answering these questions, it asks you, are you a female. And I was automatically bumped up to a higher right. score because in this hypothetical model, women tend to shop there more frequently. Another question was if I was married. Yes, I am. And they say that that bumped my score up also because when you're a married woman shopping in the store, you tend to buy for your husband. You tend to buy for your kids, right. you buy for more people there. So I had a really high CLV number of $94.37. Well, good for you. I was in the big spender category, which I'm sure my husband would not be happy to hear about. With that comes perks like being invited to VIP shopping events, early access to sales, and better customer service. Yeah, it said specifically that it would shoot you up to the top of the phone list mm -hmm. and you'd get handled immediately. Yep. I put mine in. Obviously, I got a lower score just because I was a guy right away. My score ended up being $40.26. So I was right in the middle. I wasn't a cheapskate because they had a cheapskate, middle of the road, and big <laughs> spender, which you were, Miranda. So I was right in the middle. So anything that was a score between 30 and 60, they said that they would send me occasional discounts. What these numbers mean, my $90, Oscar's $40, is basically how much money we're going to each spend in any given visit to this store. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
and they inject this toxin, which destroys the nerve endings responsible for feeling pain. You know, after that, the pain wears off and you end up with a knee that is desensitized to pain because the actual neurons have been destroyed. And it's a fundamentally different way of working on pain than, say, opioids. Joining us now is Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. So we're going to talk about your latest story about a chemical so hot it destroys nerve fibers, but in a good way. In Morocco, there's a cactus-like plant that on the Scoville scale of hotness, it's 16 billion units. It's 10,000 times hotter than the Carolina Reaper, which is the world's hottest pepper. It has a chemical in there called RTX, and people are saying that it could help with pain management. Uh, not, It's not going to replace opioids or anything like that, but it very well could help with pain management. What do we know about this? It's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? The, essentially the hottest substance on Earth, you said 16 right. billion units on the Scoville scale is pretty much unimaginable. You, of course, wouldn't want to put this in your mouth, but it has evolved as a defense in this plant, the resin spurge, as a defense against mammals to keep it from getting chewed on. So I would not want to go down that road, no, obviously. But doctors, scientists have noticed that this has a very unique property in that it destroys nerve endings and not in any old sensory neuron. We have a bunch of these different kinds of neurons that feel vibrations or light touch. These are specific sensory neurons for pain, uh, specifically temperature. So this molecule, resiniferatoxin, we'll just call it RTX for short now because that's much easier, binds to these neurons and actually destroys them. That sounds obviously very painful, but the idea here is that you could put somebody under anesthesia and inject this in, say, a sore knee. And this would be for very, obviously, serious medical problems. Right. It's not just if you have a sore knee after running a marathon. It's not going to be uh, your you new aspirin it. or anything like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is a considerably more powerful. So you're you're under for the operation and, and they inject this toxin, which destroys the nerve endings responsible for feeling pain. When you wake up, they put you on pain medication for a couple of hours, traditional pain medication that is. But, you know, after that, the pain wears off and you end up with a knee that is desensitized to pain because the actual neurons have been destroyed. And it's a fundamentally different way of working on pain than, say, opioids. The craziest things that people come up with, you know, and using this chemical to help treat pain, it could help free us from the grasp of opioids. We know that the country is going through an epidemic of this stuff with people taking these medications and abusing them. And if we could use something like this to treat the pain specifically, targeting only these pain-sensing nerve endings, you don't have to take other pills. One of the anesthesiologists that you talked to for the story said, when you put a hot pepper on your tongue and it feels like it's burning, it's not because your tongue is actually on fire. It's just activating those sensory axons that are being activated as if your tongue had been on fire. And that's what they're targeting, just those specific pain sensors. So you can use this RTX, but it won't affect your sense of touch or sense of feel in different ways. That's a really important distinction. We're not destroying all pain. This is a very targeted technique. So if you have a sore knee, it goes only in the knee, only destroys the pain in that area that leaves the rest of your body able to feel pain. Unlike opioids, which is, in the article I call it, this new technique is more of a sniper rifle than a hand grenade with opioids. You put opioids in the body and they bind to receptors 
all over your body. So you get side effects throughout. Of course, one of those is addiction. You can't get addicted to this RTX. It is a usually one-time treatment that lasts many months. In dog models, they're actually seeing that it killed pain for 18 months in one dog, which is pretty remarkable. And this, there's, again, there's no risk for addiction. So as I had mentioned before, this is a very serious procedure. And, and this is still going through trials. So it's right. not like it's available. Yeah, it's a very serious procedure for very serious problems. It's not like you have a sore knee and you just go in because you feel a little down. But it is a promising treatment to not get rid of opioids altogether, right. as nice as that might be. But for specific applications, this could be a very powerful way to keep doctors from having to prescribe opioids. Now, one of the things that were, was interesting in the story, you did mention that research has been done on dogs with this RTX. And so it destroys nerve fibers and, and takes away the pain, but it's not necessarily permanent, right? So they do grow back, and that is why it is a, a, a temporary pain relief. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's temporary in the sense that in a dog, it lasted 18 months. Of course, dogs aren't humans, and there still needs to be more trials on how long this would work in human beings. But at the NIH, they're actually working on a different application here, which is not injecting specifically in the knee, but injecting into the fluid around the spinal cord, not specifically in the spinal cord because that could damage it. But when you inject this in that more central location, you actually get a more widespread elimination of the pain. And this is important for people who are suffering from things like bone cancer, where no other medication is helping them to relieve pain. So they're going through these trials right now. It'd be really interesting to see the results from that using this as an extremely powerful medication for end-of-life care when nothing else is working. And it gets a little trickier there because you want to be sure that you're not eliminating all pain, right? Because right. we have pain for a very good reason. It's an evolutionary tool to keep us from doing stupid things with our body. We need it. So there's a tricky balance here. It's, it's using this extremely powerful technique to really destroy pain at the sensory neuron level. But we have to be careful about how we do that because we want to keep these people having a sense of pain. Otherwise, it could lead to trouble. So right. it, is, it will be interesting to see in the, the coming years how these trials shake out. But it looks very promising, particularly in dog models. And as the work continues, yeah, I mean, maybe there's a possibility to dilute it somehow so that it doesn't take that much of an effect. As you said, we don't want to end pain completely. So maybe there is a possibility to dilute it. Right. It's a, it's a tool. It's, go and it's going to be a tool and not a cure-all for the opioid crisis. But it, it could help alleviate that by, again, more specifically, targeting pain as opposed to the, the hand grenade that is opioids. Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. And this one is, as you said, extremely cold, probably around 238 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So not a place where we expect to, to find any, any life or anything like that. Joining us now is Doyle Rice, science reporter at USA Today. The new science news that came out was that scientists have found a super Earth. 
It's a planet much bigger and colder than our world, and it's been discovered in orbit around a nearby star. What do we know about this super Earth? Yeah, as you said, it's three or four times as large as the Earth, and uh, super Earth is defined as a planet that is bigger than the Earth, but still smaller than some of the giant planets in our solar system, like Jupiter or Saturn or Neptune. Super Earth is somewhere in between those two. And this one is, as you said, extremely cold, probably around 238 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So not a place where we expect to, to find any, any life or anything like that. It's in orbit around Barnard's star, which is the closest single star to our solar system in the galaxy. Yeah, it's about 30 trillion miles away from Earth. But as you said, it's and it, relatively speaking, it is kind of close. It's only, what, uh, is it six light years away? Something, yeah. something like that? I had to do the math on that one. They Six light years. People sometimes have trouble figuring that out. So I did multiply it out and it got 30 trillion, which is still pretty hard to imagine anyway. But it's definitely far away, but astronomically speaking, fairly close. Now tell us the name of this planet because it's not a very creative one. No, they, they use a very basic naming system. This one is called Barnard's Star B, with the B meaning just it's one of the objects they found in orbit around it. Perhaps, the, I, I don't know for sure, but Barnard's Star A might be the star itself. Right. And then uh, B is this object they've probably spotted around it. I know they have certain rules probably around naming certain these things, but... They could have come up with something a little bit more creative on that yeah, one. I, I get, yeah, there's a system out there. I'm assuming there's a couple of astronomical associations that are in charge of this sort of thing. And I know sometimes when there's uh, meteors or comet, they do give them a little more fun names, sometimes named after uh, famous astronomers or physicists. But in this case, for now, it's just Barnard's Star B. And because they have to be precise with how they describe these, these things, they say that they're 99.2% sure that this is actually a planet there. How did they discover this? There's actually a worldwide effort among dozens of astronomers and several different telescopes that were looking for this thing. It was a team of international researchers, and they spent uncounted hours and days looking in the sky at this one tiny little patch of the sky. And it was actually a new technique they used this time to determine that from the best that they could see, they based on what they're looking at, they could kind of detect almost for sure that there, there's something there. They can't give it the 100% sure yet, but based on all the physics and the, uh, the science, the best science they have, it's a certainly very likely it is there and they'll keep they'll keep studying it and as the technology improves they should be able to at some point give it that full 100%. The technique they used for this particular observation it's probably going to be used again for others. It gets pretty technical pretty quick as far as the methodology that they use but it's certainly state of the art in astronomy and this particular one they actually look back I believe at 20 years worth of data so a, a giant team of astronomers were working full-time on this for quite some time. I've always loved space and space stories. Obviously, finding a new planet is very exciting. It just, you know, leads to more details of the universe and, and how it was formed and all these things. And obviously, everybody always wants to know if there's life out there and the hunt for aliens and whatnot. This planet in particular, probably not so much. It's not, it's well beyond the habitable zone where you can find liquid water and things like that. Yeah, it's not in that so-called Goldilocks zone where it's either not too cold or not too hot. This one is in definitely in the too cold for, uh, as far as they know, for liquid water to form, which of, of course is what scientists believe is 
necessary for life as we know it to form. So uh, it's just this particular one is, is too cold, but the, the search goes on, and they're, always, they're finding new exoplanets. It seems like every few months now, new ones all over the place. Again, an exoplanet is a planet outside of our own solar system. Well, that's great, and we'll see if we can get that 100% confirmation, and hopefully we can find some new exoplanets out there. As with astronomy, as with all science, it just to be continued. It's a long, long process. Doyle Rice, science reporter at USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.